0: At this time, I'd like to introduce to you Ken Alberts. Uh, he's a friend of John's, and so with that, you know, I thought well, he must be an, an okay guy anyway, if he's a friend of John's. Uh, and uh, he's coming to us from Jeffersonville, is that correct? Uh, and uh, so I want to welcome you to the public, John. Thanks. You can fill in all the details. All right, thanks. Well, it's a, uh, it's a joy and an honor to be here this morning. Um, I'm looking around and I'm seeing a few faces that look vaguely familiar. I've been up here a few times in the past, been up here to see uh, John Schlitt perform. Um, I believe I gave my testimony here maybe five or six years ago and uh, did a, um, a training session on evangelism uh, with some of you. I helped direct the association for several years a few years back. So it's just a delight to be here. Uh, got three quarters of my family with me today. Uh, my wife Shauna is here, and my son Jerome, who is a, a first-year student at Western Kentucky and uh, outdresses me every day, um, <laughs> is, uh, is in for fall break with us this weekend. Uh, my, our other son Caleb is a, a senior graduating at Jeff High uh, this year, and for the last oh, year plus he has been the staff pianist at First Baptist Jeffersonville, so he is uh, working Uh, This morning at church Um, so so who am I what am I doing here today well um, I'm here to uh, to fill in for you uh, this week and next week and to uh, to hopefully share uh, something out of God's Word with you before I start let me tell you one of my favorite jokes uh, one of the joys of going and preaching at different churches is I can tell some of my favorite jokes and you haven't heard it before, hopefully. So, this is a story about a, uh, a Sunday school teacher with the preschoolers teaching on creation out of Genesis. And to, and to teach creation... She's talking about animals that God has made and things that God has made. And she's playing a little game with the kids. She says, I'm thinking of an animal. Who can tell me what it is? It's small and bushy and it lives in trees. Nobody says a word. I said, okay, well, you know, it's, it's gray or brown. It's got a long, bushy tail. Nobody says a word. She says, yeah, it sits on its hind legs and it eats acorns and nuts and finally one little boy raises his hand and said, you know, yeah, this is Sunday school and I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep it easy today. Um, if you should get distracted partway through the sermon, doze off, leave halfway through. Um, later on, people say, hey, this guy came in and he preached. What did he talk about? You can sound like you know what I talked about. You can say, well, he told a joke about a squirrel and he preached about Jesus. So, and the point of this week's sermon and next week's sermon is Jesus. As we sang earlier, more about Jesus. That's what we're here for. Going to be preaching this morning from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. Before I get started on the sermon, I want to talk about questions. Questions. Everybody has them. I wonder how many questions you have been asked or have already asked. So far this morning, just since waking up. How many questions have you heard this week, this month, this year? Our world is surrounded by questions. Now, I'm not going to get all technical. There are basically three broad different types of questions. The first type I'm just going to call general questions. They're the kind of questions that we ask when we are looking for information. We're asking because we don't know, but we want to know. So when my son uh, comes home from college for the weekend, and I ask, how's it going down there at WKU? I ask because I want to know. I'm not there with him. I'm not observing how it's going. I'm curious, and I need information, and I want an answer are there other kinds of questions that we ask that um, we ask because we want to know if you know the answer. Um, Did you study for your test? Well, that's a different kind of question, isn't it? And then there's a third kind of question that Maybe we already know the answer, and maybe you already know the answer, but we ask the question so that you will think about the question. Remember when the kids were smaller, and they were supposed to clean their rooms. So, you know, we had dinner, we said, okay, guys, go clean your rooms, and half an hour later or an hour later, they're still in the living room with us, And we say, have you cleaned your room? Now, I know that they haven't cleaned their room. They know that they haven't cleaned their room. So why ask it as a question? Well, because at that particular moment, I want them to think both about the question and about the answer. We all ask those kinds of questions, don't we? In fact, I just asked one right then, didn't I? In fact, now I've asked three in a row, right? And you're probably all wondering, when are you gonna stop asking these stupid questions, right? (laughs) Believe it or not, the Bible has almost 3,300 questions in it. 3,300. 66 books of the Bible, if they were spread out evenly, that would be 50 questions in every book of the Bible. Now, most of the questions are just the sort of ordinary, everyday, information-seeking questions. For instance, when the Magi come to Jerusalem and they ask, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? They're asking people because they want the answer. They don't know. They want to know. When the Philippian jailer screams in anguish. What must I do to be saved? He wants to know what he has to do to be saved. That's what most of the questions in the Bible are like. But out of the 3,300, almost a third of them, almost 1,100 questions are asked by God, either directly by God or through one of his prophets or an angelic messenger speaking on his behalf. Why would God ask so many questions? I will tell you at the outset, the Bible absolutely, unequivocally, unquestionably teaches God knows all things. God is never seeking information. God is never curious about what's happening or what's going on I could quote 200 passages of scripture I'm only going to quote a couple one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament in the Old Testament Psalm 139 David writes "O Lord you have searched me and known me you know when I sit down and when I rise up you discern my thoughts from afar you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows what we're going to say before we say it. What we're going to think before we think it. At the very end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus comes to restore Peter and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Jesus isn't curious as to whether or not Peter loves him. In fact, each time Peter responds, Lord, you know. Why are you asking me, you know? Jesus asked the first time, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know. Of course I love you. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know. He asks him a third time. Peter, do you love me? Peter, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know all things. So God never asks the information-seeking questions. He asks the other kinds of questions. He asks questions of us to see if we know, and he asks questions so that we will think about both the question and the answer. This morning I'm going to be preaching about the very first question from God in the Bible, and it comes in Genesis chapter 3. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thousands of years ago, Moses was moved to write these words of God And by the power of God, they're preserved for us for today. Here, in part, the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die but the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its food and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate Let's pray. Lord God, we all come into this time with things on our heart, things on our mind, with cares and concerns and burdens, with distractions. Lord, I pray that for these next few moments, may our eyes and our hearts our ears, our whole being, Lord, may we be open to you, attentive to you. May your spirit move in our midst, revealing to us your Son, that we may be drawn to him more closely, conformed more nearly to his image, better able to do your will in bringing glory to him through Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Where are you? God's first question to us. You know, I, I only have a limited amount of time this morning. I'm sure you're thankful for that. So I can't walk through this whole passage with the detail I'd like to. But I do want to talk just a little bit about what's going on here in Genesis chapter 3. The, the passage begins by saying the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. No explanation For who the serpent is, or why he's there, or what he looks like, or why he's talking, other parts of scripture make it quite clear that the serpent is Lucifer, is Satan, embodied in this being, in this beast. I have no idea why Eve engages him in conversation, Um, It just happens. It's presented as fact. He comes to her and he asks her a question. The very first question in the Bible. And isn't it interesting that the very first question in the Bible is Satan questioning what God has said. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Not only does he question what God says, he twists what God has said and asks a question that's set up for failure. Now, there are a lot of different ways that question could be interpreted. Is he quizzing her? Did you get it right, what God said? Or he's seeking information. Is this what God said? Or he's trying to get her to question God's motives. God's love, God's blessing. Eve responds and gets it wrong. She said, yes, uh, he said we may eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Scripture doesn't record that he had said, don't touch it. He had said, don't eat it. Now the serpent contradicts God directly. You will not surely die. And he tries to give an explanation for why she should believe him, of why God told her not to do this. said, no, on the God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, the serpent speaks truth here. They will become like God in knowing good from evil. Up until this point, they were made in the image, in the likeness of God. They bore God's resemblance and characteristics in many ways. But they were still very unlike God in many ways. One of the ways they were unlike God is God knew good and evil. They knew only good. When God created everything in the garden, he pronounced it all good. When he created them, he pronounced it very good. And scripture tells us that the garden was filled with everything that was necessary for life and was pleasing to the eye. It was paradise. And that was all they knew. It's impossible for us to know things we haven't experienced. I love it when people are looking at a new food for the first time and they're asking, What does it taste like? Tastes like what it tastes like. Somebody says, What do strawberries taste like? Well, I mean, you can say they're fruit, they're sweet, and. They taste like strawberries. They don't taste like blueberries. They don't taste like apples. They don't taste like bananas. They don't taste like celery or cottage cheese. They taste like strawberries. You can't know what they taste like until you've tasted them. Love. Unless you've ever felt love, and been in love you don't really know what it is you can read about love you can say things about love but until you felt it you really don't know it Adam and Eve knew only good God knew good and evil and Satan said The moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Well, Eve looked at the tree and she saw that it was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. And now she desired it to make her wise, to make her more like God. So she took it and she ate it. And Adam took it and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew evil. It's a horrible thing to know yourself to be a sinner. To know that in your heart God has placed knowledge of right and wrong, of good and bad, And knowing what's good and right, choosing to do what's wrong and bad, and knowing yourself to be a sinner in that moment, it opens our eyes to something that we'd rather not have to see. Adam and Eve knew that they were sinners and they felt exposed before God, naked and ashamed. And they immediately did what every one of us does when we know ourselves to be sinners. They tried to cover their sin and hide from their sin. They were ashamed. They felt exposed. So they sowed big leaves together and covered their loins and hid themselves in the trees. I think it's fascinating. And again, a subject that would be a whole second sermon on itself as to why in their shame they covered their loins. Well, they hid themselves. And then they heard a familiar sound God moving in the garden, coming to fellowship with them in the cool of the day. And they tried to hide from God behind some trees. God came to them anyway, knowing what they had done, knowing how they felt, knowing what they were thinking, and knowing what they were trying to do. He called out a question that he wanted them to ask. Where are you? Where are you? It's an easy question, one that God asks all of us. I suppose there are three ways we could try to answer the question, where am I? The first one is a physical answer. Where are you right now? Well, you're sitting in a seat, in a room, in a building, in a town, in a county, in a state, in a country, on a continent, on a planet, in a solar system, in a galaxy, in a universe. In a few minutes I'll be done preaching and we'll leave this room and we'll be somewhere else. And then there'll be Sunday school and many of you will stay for it. And when it ends, you'll leave the building and you'll be somewhere else. Wherever you are physically, very soon, you'll be somewhere else. Where are you emotionally? Well, I don't know. I suppose emotionally, many of you are in many different places. Some of you are filled with joy. You've been rejoicing in good news and God's blessing. You've been immersed in the presence of the Lord and in His Word. And like a cup running over, the joy of the Lord is your strength and it's spilling over with abundance. Others of you are struggling with bad news. With doubts and fears and worries and cares and concerns, with illness or tragedy. Others of us, we're in the trees, covering ourselves with fig leaves, knowing we touched the fruit we shouldn't have touched. We ate what God said, don't eat. And we feel ourselves exposed. You know, it's it's the the fruit itself was nothing. It was just a thing that God said, "Obey me in this small thing." It could have been anything. God could have said to Adam and Eve, you can ride any animal in the garden except the zebra of the knowledge of good and evil. When you ride the zebra of the knowledge of good and evil, you will know good and bad, right and wrong. He could have said, you can swim in any of the rivers or ponds of the garden except don't swim in the river of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you do, you'll die. It was just one small thing that God said out of everything I've given. Treasure this as holy, as sanctified, as set apart only to me, not for you. That's the one thing we want. We look at it, it looks good. We see its benefits. And we want to know. What makes it so special? And we take it and we taste it. And in that moment, we know this is the one thing God wanted me not to do. Physical, emotional, there's also a spiritual location. Where are you spiritually? Are you drawing closer to God or walking further from God? Are you united in fellowship to where God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day and you rejoice to see Him and be with Him? Or do you sense His presence? and turn and run and hide? This isn't a question that God asks only here. This is the only place in Scripture where God asks it specifically in three words. Where are you? But the pages of Scripture show this question again and again and again. In Joshua, chapter 24. Many of us are familiar with that passage from Joshua um you know, choose this day who you serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But before Joshua makes that great statement of faith, he re- recounts all of Israel's history in just a few short sentences. He reminds them that. Way back in the past, God had chosen one person named Abraham who was an idolater. And God had revealed himself to Abraham and called Abraham to follow him. And Abraham believed God and trusted him and set aside his idols and followed God. And out of Abraham, God raised up a nation of thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. First it was just a family group. They'd gone down to Egypt to escape a famine. And there they grew into a mighty nation. And they left more than a million people. And they wandered in the desert. And they came to this land of promise. And God had given them along the way. Revelation of himself. His presence. His law. A system of worship. And now they're in this land of promise. They've the Jordan and they've taken possession of it. God has subdued all of their enemies and they're in the presence of God's will in the land of blessing, a land overflowing with milk and honey, filled with wells they didn't dig and vineyards they didn't plant and cities they didn't build and it's all theirs. And Joshua says to them, where are you? remember where you are you recognize where you are well you still have a choice serve the Lord and worship him only or worship the gods of the land here's the decision we're making me and my house we're going to serve the Lord for a while Israel made that same decision they served the Lord but Just a generation later, they started to turn from him. And for the next hundreds of years, through cycles of judges and cycles of kings, they ran further and further and further from God. Every now and then they they drew closer to him again. But they ran further and further. And eventually, they ran so far from God that he did the unimaginable. He cast them out of the land into exile. They went into Babylon. We read in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? God was speaking to them again. Where are you? You were in the promised land now you're in exile. You're in bondage. You're in pain. You're in humiliation and misery. Where are you? Jonah. God came to Jonah and told him, I want you to go to this place and say this thing and do this thing. And Jonah ran the opposite direction. God let him run and then God railed him in. He sent a storm to box him in. He sent a bunch of sailors to draw lots and single him out and pitch him into the water. And a giant fish to swallow him up and drag him down to the deeps of the ocean. And God didn't let him die there. Kept him alive so he could think for a moment. Where am I? I thought I was covering my sin with fig leaves and hiding in the trees. God found me. He sought me. He trapped me. Where am I? And out of the depths, he called out to the Lord. Sometimes where you are can be a really good place. In Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John go up onto the mountaintop with Jesus. And there, Moses and Elijah appear in their glorified form. And Jesus is transformed before them. All of his veiled majesty is revealed and they see him for the first time not as son of man but as son of God Peter says wow this is pretty cool I want to stay here for a long long time Lord let me build three tabernacles one for Moses and one for Elijah one for you he doesn't even even need a tent for himself he'll sleep out there on the ground And God speaks from above, a voice thunders down from heaven saying, this is my son, look at him. Peter, where are you? You're on a mountaintop with a bunch of people. But the place that you're at, the physical location, that's going to change. You're not going to stay on the mountaintop for the rest of your life. Where are you emotionally, Peter? Man, you're rejoicing. You're on the highest high. But you won't stay emotionally high forever. Where are you spiritually? Aha. here's the kicker. You are in the presence of Emmanuel God with us you are in the presence of Jesus Yahweh saves you are in the presence of the Christ the Messiah the anointed one look at where you are in fact in all the places that you've been over the last two and a half years that's where you've been you've been with him Stop looking at the place. Stop looking at how you feel. Look at Him. That's where you are. Where am I going with all this? Well, where are you this morning? Are you in the land of promise with Joshua? You've been in the center of God's will for a while. You've been obeying and following Him. God has blessed. You've been blessed with villages that you, cities that you didn't build and wells that you didn't dig and vineyards you didn't plant and blessings from God, abundant and undeserved. Are you in exile? Trying to sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land trying to sing songs of joy in the midst of misery and humiliation and shame. It doesn't matter whether we are on the Mount of Transfiguration or the Valley of the Shadow of Death. The highest high is going to change. The lowest low is going to change. Where you are physically In a few minutes, you'll be somewhere else. Where you are emotionally, I guarantee, at some point, you'll be somewhere else. Where you are spiritually, well, if you're in Christ, with Christ, that's the only thing that will never change. That's the only thing that will be eternal. If you're apart from Christ... There's still time to change that until you die. And if you die apart from Christ, you'll remain that way forever. Where are you? It doesn't shock me that this is the very first question that God asks of us in the pages of Scripture. I think it forms the basis for every other question God asks and for every other question will ever be asked. It's really the only question that matters right now. Let me share just a couple of quick truths and then I'll be done. Number one, God knows exactly where you are. Nothing is hidden from his sight. We can sow all the fig leaves in the world. We can hide behind all the trees in the world. We can put on all the masks and facades. God knows where you are. This is both the worst news in the world and the best news in the world. It's the worst news because if we're not where we're supposed to be, we are exposed, we are naked before the eyes of the Lord. And nothing we can do can cover it or hide from it. It's also the best news because God knows where you are and loves you anyway. Knowing where you'd be, God died for you. While you were getting yourself where you are, Jesus was there. And if you're in Jesus, that's the best place to be. It's the only place to be. And if you're in Jesus, any other thing that's going on, whether the best or the worst, well, heck, it's only a thing. It will end. It will change. A day is coming where God will wipe away every tear, soothe every heart, right every wrong, mend every brokenness, and embrace us in his love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. No matter where we are, you're there. There's nowhere we can run to. There's no place we can hide from you. There's nothing we can do uh, that can horrify or dismay or cause your love for us to lessen one bit. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is here, now, in us, with us, coming to us, calling to us. Lord, we're all in different places right now. Many of us are in places of of pain and brokenness. Lord, we need to feel ourselves in you and near you and with you today. May we embrace your nearness and abide in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation, I guess. And um, if God has spoken to you this morning, then this is the time to respond.